This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Hello, I'm Anna Shemansky, and this is The Exchange from Reuters Breaking Views. 2020 has been a year of contradictions as investors face both official policy shifts as well as the acceleration of ongoing trends. Whether they're considering the unpredictable election outcome, the unprecedented amount of stimulus the U.S. has provided, or the implications of the Federal Reserve's new approach to inflation, investors may be rethinking long-held ideas about how different asset classes behave. I'm very pleased to discuss all of this and more with Greg Jensen, Bridgewater Associates Co-Chief Investment Officer. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Anna. So to get started, I think we're going to talk about the topic everyone is talking about today, which is the election. I should say we are taping this the afternoon of Wednesday, November 4th. We currently don't have a definitive outcome. At this stage, it looks possibly like we may end up with a Biden presidency and a Republican Senate, but again, still very much up in the air. And that's actually where I want to start. A few months ago, it seemed like a lot of investors were very nervous about the possibility of a contested election or an uncertain outcome. Now it looks like we might be getting an uncertain outcome. And yet, I don't necessarily think we're seeing a tremendous amount of anxiety in equity markets, in the VIX. So I'm wondering if you think that that is going to continue. Well, I think um, in terms of the election, I'd say first off, as you're describing, I think there's still, a uh, even at this moment, there's still an assumption that this will work out reasonably, that we'll have a president and this resolved in a reasonable way. I think there's enough information out there pointing in a, in a direction that makes it seem like this will work out without a long contested um, thing, but that's still a possibility. Um, so, th- so A, there's some relief associated with it appearing to be moving in that direction, although that could change uh, as the information changes. Right. But bigger picture, there's the... This is a very important election, not just because of all the reasons that we could think about Biden and Trump as very different presidents, but mm-hmm. the backdrop that this is all happening in, the macroeconomic backdrop, yep. which is really you know, what I'm here to talk about. And the, um, the macroeconomic backdrop is so interesting because we are, in our view, entering a new paradigm. And the dimensions of that paradigm are so important because more than ever, political things happening in the United States will impact that macro environment for the following reason, that we're at the end of the last paradigm. The last paradigm brought interest rates down to zero, mm-hmm. um, brought quantitative easing to massive amounts, tried to do everything we could to stimulate the private sector, to generate enough economic growth to create tolerable social outcomes. Right. And it's willing to occur. 
And so once you get interest rates to zero, and once you drive enough QE that you flatten the yield curve, you basically run out of juice for central banks to stimulate the private sector. So you move to this need for the public sector to generate growth or to accept kind of intolerable levels of low growth, particularly low growth and implications for a big portion of the um, economy. So while the average might be okay, mm -hmm. there's a big part of the economy that's doing quite poorly. So naturally there's this need for a transition to what we call MP3, but is really fiscal policy picking up where monetary policy has squeezed basically all the juice. And that requires political um, impact. It really, so the presidency matters, the um, Senate matters. And so if you take the last 40 years, monetary policy in our view is four or five times more important than fiscal policy. If you look forward, it's probably the opposite. And so understanding markets really require an understanding of fiscal policy and looking at elections becomes so much more important because the impact they end up having on MP3. And besides that, in terms of the election, the other big thing in, is the conflict in the world, the domestic conflict that's going on as well as the international conflict. And certainly the presidency matters a lot to how the temperature on those conflicts are gonna be dealt with. I think there's an expectation, and certainly you're seeing it in the market reaction today, that Biden will turn down the temperature and there'll be less, let's say, instability and risk premium in what international trade is gonna be like, what our relationships with our allies are gonna be like. So I think you're seeing sort of outperformance of external equity markets, foreign equity markets, particularly mm -hmm. emerging markets, because you're, there's an expectation at least that some of the conflict globally will be handled in a more stable way. And um, that's happening at the same time. There's a bigger question about fiscal policy because while Biden would lean towards doing a lot of fiscal, the Republican Senate may hold that back. Although finally, the last thing you see in the market action today certainly is much lower likelihood of tax increases because the split Republican Senate making it much less likely some of the things Biden had been pushing on taxes will happen. Yeah, let's dig a little bit deeper into that fiscal question. Because I think this is, as you said, going to be extremely important moving forward. And I think we have the near-term question of what type of stimulus we get if we have divided government. And then also that long-term question that if we have divided government moving forward, even if we are able to get a stimulus plan you know, in the next six months, what does that mean for fiscal policy in the next four years? Yeah, well, I think, um, so there's the very long term. I think we have, just as we've run kind of the monetary super cycle, you've run the Fed all the way down to zero interest rates and QE infinity, more or less. Mm -hmm. That I think you're moving the same path on fiscal, while it might be choppier because you have this divided government um, likely, likely going forward here, and the Republicans will probably turn back to being more fiscally conservative than they were during the Trump presidency. Nonetheless, the basic path, and this is not just a U.S. phenomenon, across the developed world, is that spending more so far has come at no expense. The, com the countries that right. spent more during the, um, during the COVID crisis have performed better. The, they haven't had any negative consequences. What are the negative consequences of spending? Would be inflation or currency mm -hmm. problems with the debt. Countries that can print their own debt are not suffering from any of those things. And so you're seeing this big macro trend towards more and more printing money and spending money mm -hmm. as the way to deal with societal problems. And I think that's, you know, that is just the path of things. It may be bumpier because of mm -hmm. political differences or whatever, but that's the path. And that's going to lead eventually, that's going to keep going until you hit the limits of that, just as they kept lowering interest rates every cycle, even though they'd raised them less than they did before and lowered them lower until 
they um, hit the floor, same thing's going to happen for um, spending and printing the money, which that, that wall will be currency weakness and inflation. And that'll be the next big turning point. But mm -hmm. until then, we think you can expect and really need to understand the implications of economic cycles that are driven due to fiscal policy rather than the cycles we're used to that were driven by the incentives in the private sector that came from different levels of interest rates or different levels right. of assets. So that's, the, um, that's really the big change. And that's a very different economy. In fact, mm -hmm. more like the lessons from really having studied the Chinese economy for many decades. Uh, there's a lot of similarities there of where fiscal policy and directed fiscal policy is mm -hmm. so important to the cycles in China in a way it hasn't been the case as much in the United States. Right. And you know, speaking of China and also going back to something you had said earlier about this idea of a potential Biden presidency bringing down the temperature in foreign relations. And I'm wondering if you think if that does occur, if you do have a Biden presidency and you perhaps have more predictable foreign policy, trade policy, what do you think that might mean for assets outside of the United States, particularly you know, emerging markets? Yeah, well, we think it's quite constructive. You've seen this huge, so if you take, take separate it into emerging markets and then let's talk about China. But in the emerging markets, they've really suffered very few, very mm -hmm. low capital flows. Um, from the U.S. to the emerging markets over the last um, few years during the Trump presidency, much lower than during the Obama presidency. And during COVID, their economies have been hit much harder because they've done much less fiscal than right. the developed world. So you've seen this massive shift in balance of payments. I mean, Mexico is running a record current account surplus. They don't, they're not requiring much in the way of foreign capital. And over the years, they've shifted more of their debt to local currency from yep. foreign currency. So they've been more stable as a currency during a crisis. Mm -hmm. So we think going forward with the temperature down that you have this relatively good pricing in the emerging world, the um, ability to have capital flows from the developed world back to the emerging world is improving at the same time they don't need hardly any capital in order because their balance of payments are so good. Mm -hmm. we, we think emerging markets are quite constructive here and there's differences obviously across many of them, but Mexico and Brazil and others should benefit from this uh, new environment, a new environment for capital flows, which will create a little bit more stability in that. Now, the China picture is much more complicated. It's not mm -hmm. like this is just a Trump-China thing that was going on. Right. This is a classic challenge of having China become as powerful as the United States and the U.S. and China both dealing with that issue in the world. And mm -hmm. so some of what has been true, probably the attempt to become more independent and less interdependent and to go from collaborating to um, competing is true no matter who the president is. And so there's gonna be a lot across that dimension and that's complicated even if it's managed with the temperatures down in, in a way. It's a complicated, difficult issue um, where there's a lot of, in the US, bipartisan support for taking a tougher line and competing more clearly. And you're likely to see a continuation of that which has big global implications because you are getting less efficient supply lines, more independent supply lines, less efficient technology, more independent technologies. Those, uh -huh. we think, um, will continue and continue to be a drag, somewhat of an upward pressure on inflation as uh -huh. efficient moving to, uh, away as an independence. And just a constant area where there will be conflicts and they may be somewhat significant, they may be more, more narrow, but there will be conflicts because 
we have these two powers in the world now and one surging while the other one is actually coming down. So the U.S. dealing with less and less power and the implications of that is a big deal. And the final point I'd say that's kind of important for mm -hmm. markets related to that is the placement of the dollar. Yep. Because one of the reasons we've been able to follow, to do MP3 at the extreme level we have is because of the dollar as a reserve currency. It allows us to print more money. It allows us mm -hmm. to spend more money than any other country in the right. world. And at the same time, as you go from partners and collaborating with countries like China and other countries that are saving money in the world to competing with them, they recognize that you, they can never get more wealthy than us if they're saving in our currency because we can always print the currency. The Fed mm -hmm. can print a balance sheet larger than all the accumulated surpluses that Asia has had over the last two decades of current account surpluses. Yep. You can't save that way. And you're seeing that in the world that generally speaking, there, is go, there needs to be and there is starting to be a movement out of saving in dollars into saving in other things. And so that's a big major trend that we don't think the Biden presidency is going to change that right. trend separation from the dollar by other uh, economies in the world is a necessary outcome of the shift in global power that's occurring. And, and when you say moving into other things, I, I'm wondering, I, have, I assume you're kind of talking potentially about either euro, renminbi, because I mean, one of the questions with the dollar is always, well, if not the dollar, what else? And, and so are you more thinking like, well, we'll have a little bit more variety in terms of reserves, but not necessarily another currency replacing the dollar? Yeah, well, I think you'll see a mix of those things. So I think it will be a variety. And certainly the renminbi is, will take a more central place. The more mm -hmm. that they, they lend, one of the reasons the US dollar has always been the reserve currency, so much of the global debt since World War II has been denominated in dollars and if right. debts are denominated in dollars, you got to save in dollars. Mm -hmm. And that's why the dollar is the thing that gets squeezed when things get bad is people have to pay off their debts. So the shift in debt in the world to other currencies will naturally lead to a shift in where people save in mm -hmm. other currencies. So that's one thing that's happening. Simultaneously, I, we do think that there's a lot of merit that's still building in gold. So even though you've had a pretty good gold rally this year mm -hmm. and over the last couple of years, it's very small relative to other transitions in policy. And if you look at gold, both because it doesn't depend on another country the way mm -hmm. almost all other reserve assets do, so that in a more contentious world, it's a more natural reserve asset. Um, so that's another part of it. And particularly when you think about if you take the transition from the gold standard in the 1930s, gold doubles mm -hmm. in that period. If you take the transition off of Bretton Woods, mm -hmm. you get NX moving gold. And if you take even the transition from interest rate policy to quantitative easing policy in 2008, gold doubles. So far in this transition from quantitative easing to MP3, you've seen about a 25 or 27% move in gold. We think you could see a lot more in gold as a result of those dynamics as well. But it'll be a mix of things, probably just as the world's becoming more inter interdependent and there'll be more pillars than the US, it'll be similar with how people save. So Jumping off of your discussion of MP3 and this shift in monetary policy, I'd like to talk a little bit about the Federal Reserve, what we've seen this year, and maybe a good place to start is the shift in the policy framework and the shift in inflation targeting. So if you could just speak a little bit about what we saw this summer. Yeah, well, hey, I, I look at what happened this summer as they are now basically putting some intellectual framework around what they had decided after 2018. So right. to me, 2018 is the, the end of the old 
Volcker-led inflation-fighting Fed. So in 2018, inflation is not a problem yet, but they start raising rates because the economy's strong. They're afraid inflation might happen. They start raising rates, and you get a collapse in the equity market and, and risk of a collapse in the economy. And there was never any inflation there. And that, that, that the small interest rate rises led to such a significant impact on markets and the economy. Mm-hmm. That triggered Powell to change his mind, a lot of pressure from others or whatever. But, but over that period between really December 15th, 2018 and January 6th, 2019, the mindset was broken. That basically mm-hmm. we're never going to preempt inflation until it's well past our target. That a new policy emerged then, which I think you saw this summer, kind of the technocrats work out the details of that right. policy. <laughs> That's when the mindset changed that we can't be in front of inflation. The disinflationary pressures are so big Mm -hmm. and the implications to the economy of a turndown, given the high levels of debt, given the promises to society, and given the fact that the average, like even GDP as as it's being measured, is really missing how many people are struggling, Mm -hmm. that there was this big change and a needed change in monetary policy. So now you've got a monetary policy where they're saying that they're going to let inflation rise above their target because it's been below. Mm-hmm. And bigger picture, I think they're moving away from an inflation and a GDP growth centered view of the world to looking at in aggregate what's going on and what's the best way to handle it. So you also have this distribution of GDP problem. Mm-hmm. So are you going to tighten if the money's going mainly to wealthy households who are saving it and it's not flowing into goods prices? What are you going to do? And they're changing that, that framework. And that's a big deal. And in the end, they're going to have to let, in my view, they're going to have to let inflation rise because the alternatives are so much worse, not because inflation is a great thing for economies. But when you look at where the level of promises, so the fiscal situation for state governments, the promises that have been made to society are so high relative to the incomes that need to pay for them, Mm -hmm. plus the level of wealth. If you take essentially what is wealth other than a draw on future income, somebody's got to pay to um, essentially pay off the wealth, whether it's debt or an equity value or whatever, it's got to come out of future income. Today, there's more draws on future income than ever. And yet our growth rates, our potential growth rates or whatever are quite low. So how are we going to pay off our promises, social security promises, pension promises, et cetera? How are we going to maintain wealth levels, asset levels at these levels? There's a couple of choices. You could, well, allow asset prices to correct and default on those promises. That's societally such a dangerous brew. Right. Or you could um, inflate those problems away. Neither choice is that good, but we're here because the debts and the promises are so high mm-hmm. and the interest rates, we've done everything we could to lower debt burdens through interest rates getting to zero. Now we got to get rid of debt burdens. And the only real path through that is through an inflation. Otherwise, you have the, the major problems that default and lower asset prices would cause in an already deflationary environment. So we think you're more likely to see essentially the Fed and the Treasury first not try to prevent inflation, and then when that's not good enough, tolerate significantly higher levels of inflation than they currently are. And so we think that's the path we're on and the needed path, and the Fed is adjusting to that reality starting with the recognition of how sensitive the economy was to um, interest rate rises in 2018, the reality that inflation is no longer as cyclical mm-hmm. as tied to the unemployment rate as people thought. Yep. And then we move into this period, and particularly the COVID crisis has accelerated this, of 
we got to put everything we can into this fiscal monetary thing. And if there's an inflation consequence, we'll deal with that later, like way later. And in terms of inflation, how do you see that developing? Because obviously we've had, you know, a significant period of time pre-COVID where rates were very low. We've seen the experience in Europe, the experience in Japan. And now we obviously are getting more fiscal stimulus than we have in a very long time. But we've also seen the Republicans push back on you know, even the current stimulus plan. So I'm just wondering how you see that inflation actually developing. Yeah, well, there will be these wiggles because, like you said, Republicans push back and if they don't do it. But if you look at the basic pressures, not doing um, those fiscal things are going to lead to fiscal cliffs that are going to lead to these negative outcomes in the economy that are going to lead to political pressure to do something. So I think that Uh you're you're going to continue to push this. And we were definitely on the other side of this after the credit crisis in the sense in 2008, a lot of people were thinking of inflation because the Fed started to expand its balance sheet. But quantitative easing without significant fiscal policy is a total different ballgame because right. what they're doing in, in what we call monetary policy too, but quantitative easing is they were really making up for the credit contraction in a way the Fed could. The Fed could act as a bank, essentially buy the bonds, lend money, and prevent a decline in, um, in credit. But they weren't. That money was not getting into the real economy at any high rate. It was essentially driving up yeah. asset prices trickling into the real economy. You turn that into fiscal policy where the money's going to the lower end of incomes and or it's being spent directly on infrastructure, totally different inflation dynamic. Understanding where the money's going, who's going to get it and what they're going to do with it is the game to sort of understand the macro economy and the markets. And man, it's totally different than this. So looking backwards and saying, well, the inflation never came when they printed the money, we think is that's misleading. You really have to understand how the money flows through fiscal policy and what that's going to be like. And as an example of this, you have this shock, COVID shock, massive mm-hmm. deflation shock. That's been easily offset um, by this. And now you're going to have a lot more fiscal into an economy at a much different level than, let's say, in April, March, April, and May. So I think you'll start to see these pressures emerge one way or the other. It's possible the money once again goes into assets and you create asset bubbles instead of mm-hmm. inflation. But I think given the way the money's likely to be spent fiscally, more likely that you put strain on the real on real assets and strain on real goods and that, that, that you start to see that inflation. And the markets are totally unprepared for that, breaking up inflation's at 1.8%. So obviously what I'm saying is not consistent with what's priced in the markets right. or the conventional view. But I think the conventional view, as it often is, is a simple extrapolation of the history that we've been through without as much focus on the changes that we're going through that are gonna likely hmm. lead to different results. And I do wonder what some of the downside risks might be because right now we have seen corporates taking on even more debt. We've seen globally tremendous amount of debt issuance and all of this seems relatively sustainable if you do have rates fairly low for a significant period of time. But as you say, if some of the fiscal policy that we're potentially going to see in the U.S. and other places does actually generate a decent amount of inflation. And even though the Fed may tolerate higher inflation, is there a risk that if the Fed did need to, when it does need to potentially raise rates, then all of a sudden this debt may seem a lot less sustainable? Right. Well, that's the huge deal, right? That right now the market is pricing assets basically as if this, the policymakers can get whatever they want which when you have a massive technological 
deflation going on, you, that's actually a boon that governments can turn into other priorities. They can distribute wealth, they can print money when there's this big deflationary pressure. But if they do so much of that, that they offset that um, and start going the opposite direction, which we think you know, you're closer than the market thinks to that inflection point, that um, that's when you lead to the, the next big probably crisis period or whatever, certainly a big uh-huh. pricing of assets is what happens when policymakers can't get what they want? What if they have to choose between multiple priorities? What if they have to choose between three and a half, four percent inflation uh-huh. um, and, um, and the priority to distribute income and deal with relatively high unemployment rates or whatever the problems of the time are? So that's where we think the next major turn in markets will be. There's two possible two ways you might get to the next major turn. I think the most likely is that that you re, you push so hard on monetary policy three and you don't get that. The okay. second is that you push hard. It doesn't really flow into the real economy, but it drives asset prices to totally unsupportable levels and a big blowing of the bubble. There's already bubble-like signs right. in parts of the market. We wouldn't say in aggregate, but there's certainly areas mm-hmm. that are bubble-like. So you could blow a really big bubble and then have trouble generating the cash needed to fill that in. That's another way it ends. And then more temporarily, I think you could see fits and starts along the way because political conflict leads to less fiscal policy than necessary. But those are all the ways that you look at, well, what's the next downturn? Maybe they don't do the fiscal, but that would probably be short-lived. Or you push to the point where, you, where the policymakers are constrained or you mm-hmm. blow a bubble so high that you can't even create enough cash to fill that in. Those are probably the end scenarios that I think are most likely. Gotcha. So lastly now, I'd like to dive in a little bit more into the weeds about what all of these shifts in monetary and fiscal policy may mean for asset price moves and correlation between assets. One of the things that I've heard a lot recently is this idea that traditional U.S. bonds are offering neither risk reduction or return. And so that's making people potentially have to rethink portfolio construction. So just to start with, I'd like your thoughts on that. Yeah, so let me separate it into two parts. You talked a little bit about the changing correlations. And I think that's A, really important the way we think about it is correlations are result. And the result of understanding the causes that drive asset prices, right? If you take from the 1980s or from the 1970s and 80s, um, bonds and equities were actually positively correlated because inflation was a major driver. Lower inflation was helping to drive down interest rates and drive up asset prices. Then all of a sudden you come into the 90s, 2000s, 2010s, growth's more volatile than inflation and stocks and bonds correlations flip to the correlation we're most used to, which is, well, if stocks go down, bonds go up and they're Mm -hmm. good diversifying assets. It doesn't have to be that way. It really depends on the drivers and the volatility of drivers. So it depends what's more volatile, growth or inflation, is going to determine the relationship between stocks and bonds. And all assets are of that nature. Mm -hmm. Is gold going to be correlated to equities? Well, today it is to some degree because it's part of the reflation trade. It goes up and down with what the Fed does. But in a war or a a conflict situation, you can see gold go up and equities go down. So there's these environments that cause the correlations, not the other way around. And, um, and so, A, that's some thoughts of the correlations. Now, most importantly, I'd say for certainly for our clients and our partners, thinking about what to do about the bond situation because they can no longer, you take the last 25 years, bonds have served this great role in portfolios. They've created great returns and they've diversified the core equity part of everybody's portfolio, of most entities' portfolios. Now, that's 
run its course, that bond yields are at levels where they can no longer provide much in the way of diversification, and they clearly provide very little in the way of long-term returns. Mm -hmm. So you've got $27 trillion of bonds that we would judge as essentially in, unable to do their role in a portfolio. Now, some, some asset holders who hold them for liquidity purposes might need to continue to hold them because right. play that role. But many have no spot for them. So one of the things you're seeing in asset crisis today is, well, what do you do? Um, some of the equity market rally is people saying, okay, well, I give up on bonds. I'll just shift more into equities. The problem right. with that is you're more and more concentrated portfolios oh. at a highly risky time. Lower bond yields help support equities. When bond yields reach zero, the discount rate on forward earnings can no longer go any right. higher. Take the U.S. equity rally from 2000 to today, half of it's been caused by falling discount rates, mm -hmm. the other half earnings and other things. But that's to give you a sense of this interest rates being low is also a problem for equities. And it's a particular problem that everybody's getting more and more concentrated and more and more illiquid. So the, alter the thing that we think people should be considering is, well, what assets can do well in the MP3 world if um, equities don't do well? And probably the most important environment that most portfolios aren't prepared for is stagflation. That they try, they go down this path, they push hard on um, fiscal policy, they print the money to do it. You have problems with the currency, et cetera, and you have a stagflationary environment where you're having trouble translating that into acceptable growth rates. And that is a real possibility. When you take MP3, unlike normal monetary policy, when you have go into bad economic times, you lower interest rates. Right. In this case, you go into bad economic times, you print more money and spend more money. So what are the assets that could be okay in that? We look at gold, inflation index bonds, other investors and more private assets can think about what assets will be bought in that type of environment. But that then provides the protection that nominal bonds can't. Inflate real yields don't have a floor the way nominal yields do. Real yields, if you take the period from 1930 to 1980, real yields in the US were negative as often as they were positive. They could be as negative as negative and negative 15% in the UK, which we think is a good analog, particularly because of the declining nature of the US empire and the, and the currency shift. Mm -hmm. In the UK, you know, you average significantly negative, get negative 20% real yields at points during that 1930 to 1980 period. So understanding that type of environment relative to the environment of the last 40 years that was an inflation fighting high real yield environment mm -hmm. can be helpful to see the difference between the benefits of inflation index bonds relative to nominal bonds, the fact that real yields can drop a lot more than they have, even though they seem stunningly low. And, um, and same thing with gold, that those can provide the protection. And even if you look at it in the period that was quite good for bonds since 1970 or whatever as a diversifier, inflation index bonds and gold diversified equities almost equally well. So we think that shift is a big deal. Both it'll drive up different types of asset prices as people shift out of bonds, sell them to the central banks and buy other things. And, um, and we think the best way to do that is buy assets that can protect and diversify your portfolio, which is where we think most people aren't doing enough of that and that there's still good opportunities to do that. Right. And do you also think that this changing environment could affect the types of equities that an investor might hold? Like, are there certain equities that could almost be kind of bond surrogates? Yeah. Well, we've done a lot of work on this, particularly uh, my co-CIO, Bob Prince, on how to how to, in a, in a fundamental way, predict what, what um, companies can act like bonds. Where can you mm -hmm. actually predict what the revenues will be like in a sustainable way? And where can you predict what the expenses will be like so that you go through that? 
and you can get a more bond-like equity. And, and we found from our research that starting with a fundamental understanding of the causes of revenue and the, and the causes of the expenses, that we can slice the equity market up. And that's been a big thing that we've been doing more and more of is slicing the equity market up to avail ourselves of positions mm-hmm. that might've taken in the bond market before, but now with interest rates much less volatile and stuck, that you might have to essentially take that macro view through slicing up the equity market. One way is buying equities that are more like bonds. That's mm-hmm. one thing. Obviously, they've been priced to some degree that way, but we think there's still opportunities to do that. Another way is to essentially, if the reasons we'd be long bonds are um, often there's a, in a recession, there's a, a, a steep yield curve that people often right. think that recovery is going to come faster than it likely will, and that policy will tighten much faster than it likely will taking similar positions in the equity market when people are expecting a recovery that, that will likely take more time or taking positions that are essential, what we'd say, contra cash, that taking the position that you'll need more MP3 mm-hmm. than people are expecting, that means they'll print more money. What, what are the things that can benefit from that? So we've shifted both by slicing up the equity market and by thinking about alternatives to cash mm-hmm. as ways to take positions on monetary policy and the length and depth of the recession that we used to take in the bond market. Gotcha. And I'm wondering too, what the, how significant geographic diversification also might play in, in the type of portfolio you're kind of describing where, again, you're not necessarily getting some of the diversification from bonds, although, as you said, from inflation protected as well as from gold, but is there also a need for a bit more geographic diversification? Yeah, well, that's a big deal. You know, over the last 15, 20 years, geographic diversification hasn't paid off for most U.S. investors. Mm-hmm. And so they've, everybody's sort of concentrated in the U.S. because U.S. assets have done so well right. relative to global assets. But wow, what a, on a, when you don't know what the future will hold, um, we think that's a huge mistake. And so mm-hmm. there are opportunities, like you're saying. I mean, first off, Chinese bonds are operating normal. If you take, mm-hmm. we, we have a balanced mix of assets we call weather, but Chinese all weather has been performing great. Um, you know, because bonds have been balancing equities in a more traditional way, bond yields are at the level such that you can have a more traditional outcome. And you're seeing the linkages work in China, i.e. growth and inflation effect on equities and bonds working as it does in the developed world. And you've seen that now over 20 years. And so we think balancing assets in the rest of the world, not being U.S. dominated, is a big deal to having the most reliable portfolio going forward, partially because you can you can get that bond balance in some places, not too many, but China. And, um, and partially because uh, you don't know. In this conflict, you don't know economically who's going to win. And right. from a pricing perspective, while each area, if you take kind of the three major poles, the U.S., you have the, some big problems in the sense of you've had such a pro-corporate environment for so long mm-hmm. with deregulation, lower taxes, lower interest rates, all the stuff that's been so great on profit margins. Now you're shifting, you're shifting your worldview. Biden, compared to Trump, we think Trump was kind of the end of this 40-year era of mm-hmm. pro-corporate. Even through Clinton and Obama, there might have been a little bit of changes, but by and large, the big picture was, since Reagan, the shift from labor to corporate, right. corporate profit margins going up because mm-hmm. policy has essentially caused that through lower taxes and lower regulation and the breaking of unions and all of that. So you've had this incredible environment of pro-corporate that reaches its peak in a sense with Trump like watching the stock market every day. Um, (laughs) That um, is almost peak insanity of corporate corporate equity focused government. 
Biden certainly has a mind view that that's gone too far and that there should right. be a reaction to that. And that's all over politics now and likely the shift because you've stretched this um, pro-corporate environment all the way to the extreme. There was good reason for it in mm -hmm. the 1980s, but right. the good thing that started created this um, wealth divide and all of these things that have gone to such an extreme that there has to be a reaction. So now you have in the U.S. the particular extreme of that. You're starting to see the movement in the other direction. The likelihood that profit margins will exceed, profit margins will continue to grow without pushback on policy seems pretty unlikely. Yet that is extrapolated into the U.S. equity market in a way it's not in the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. um, and you haven't had nearly the extreme stretch of pro-corporateness that you have had in the U.S. So the valuations um, picture in the U.S. is extrapolating what's been an incredible 15, 20 years for U.S. equities relative to the rest of the world. And we think that's dangerous. So having a better mix of okay. global assets gets you access to assets that can do well if global growth falls, i.e. Chinese bonds, and gets you access to um, prices of assets that aren't as extreme as the U.S. And from that perspective, we think that's a really good tactical move. And strategically, you should always enter it not knowing which assets, which market's going to have the best performance. Well, I think your reference to the end of an era is probably a good place to end our discussion. So thank you so much for coming on. Um, this was really great. Well, great. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to The Exchange. This podcast was produced by Freddie Joyner. Be sure to check out breakingviews.com and subscribe to our various audio products, including The Views Room, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your podcast fix. Thanks again for listening. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com slash symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC.